Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this Lord's Day, a day in which we gather to worship You, a day in which we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, a day in which we rest from our labors, resting in the finished work of Christ, we assemble in worship of You in Christ's name. And so today we ask that You would bless this day and bless this brief time of study that we have together. Uh, may you be exalted as we look, continue to look at the attributes of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, uh, I just feel like I, I need to give just a, a brief reminder. Um, we have looked at up until this point on the attributes of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. God's word is authoritative uh, over our lives. Uh, we looked at last week the clarity of Scripture which we're going to do a quick review of, uh, actually very quick review of today. And then today we're going to look at the necessity of Scripture. Now, you may remember last week when we looked at the clarity of Scripture, uh, we made a distinction that what we are not saying in discussing this doctrine, we're not saying that there are no difficult parts of the Bible. There are. We're not saying that there are not difficult verses in the Bible. There are. We're also not saying that any one person has the ability to say, well, I interpret Scripture this way and it's the right way. Uh, well, we're not saying that either. Now, we do believe, as I'm getting ready to read to you, that there are some things in Scripture that are clear. And so we make the distinction, and I draw your attention to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1.7. Let me read this to you. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Again, this is what we looked at last week, but just as a recap, what we're saying in our confession is, is that as it pertains to salvation... When we go to the Word of God in various places, it makes it crystal clear that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so as we look to Scripture, we can also, this to a certain extent, allows us to go, well, there are some really difficult parts of Scripture. And we can agree that they are difficult. Uh, some people struggle with this idea that there are parts of Scripture that we don't have a definitive position on. Now, to be clear, this is not to say that we don't take definitive positions. Um, there are uh, positions that we will take, we meaning as traditional conservative Presbyterians, that we will take on Scripture and we will argue those positions, and I mean that in a good-spirited, gracious way, we will argue those positions based on what is exegeted from Scripture. 
I will take a position from the pulpit on some difficult, well, because I preach what's called continual electa, I preach through an entire book of the Bible. I, I will take an interpretive uh, position on that. What I try to do when I'm preaching on a difficult passage is try to at least acknowledge uh, that there are different positions on this, but not always. Uh, Sometimes I will be so convinced of an interpretive position uh, on Scripture, on a certain passage of Scripture, that I will preach it in that way. But nevertheless, we need to understand and be gracious in our understanding and conveyance that that which is crystal clear is the, me, the way to salvation which is articulated in Scripture. Now, with that being said, let's, and this is going to play into this, today what we're going to look at is the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture. For what purpose is the Bible necessary? That's what we're asking. For what purpose is the Bible necessary? Uh, or we might say it this way, how much can we know about God without the Bible? That might be another way of looking at it. What can we know about God without the Bible? Now, we've already studied this, but just as a real quick recap, um, someone might say, well, we can know nothing about God apart from Scripture. Uh, That was the position, for example, of Karl Barth, uh, a Swiss theologian. And there are others that would hold that position. But we don't believe that. We agree in our confession that that there are certain aspects of God that we may know apart from the Bible. And this goes back to the very first point. If you open up the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, point 1. It starts right there, so to speak, as if um, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Well, our, our confession begins in terms of Scripture, point one of chapter one, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary unto salvation, so forth and so on. And I'm not going to read the rest of that. It's a very long paragraph. But right at the beginning, our confession says, Now, we can know, according to the works of creation and providence, God's goodness, God's wisdom, the power of of God. And all of these, as the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 1, leave man inexcusable, or as we would say, inexcusable uh, in modern English. The, the idea here is that, as we've looked at before, is that there is a general revelation, and I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second, uh, in terms of, of learning theological terms. But right now, the point I'm wanting to make is, is that although creation and God's providence do reveal th- things about God, the Bible is necessary to know that God exists or know His character and moral law. Again, in fact, I'll go ahead and jump to this. When talking about what is known of God... We refer, and this is a theological term that I think it would be good for you to know, we refer to creation and providence as general revelation. General revelation. Um, One theologian defines it as the knowledge 
of God's existence, character, and moral law that comes through creation to all humanity. And so if you think about it this way, and I know a number of you are immediately verses in the Bible are popping into your mind, and you're thinking, well, that's, that's what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And yes, that is in fact what the psalm declares. We think about, for example, when, when Paul was preaching, and he's preaching to pagans, and he is drawing their attention to creation. And Paul said this, In the past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with, good, with food and gladness. And so God has revealed Himself and His wisdom, and His knowledge, and His power to man in the way that He has given to them. You'll hear this sometimes uh, referred in conjunction uh, with the theological term common grace. Common grace as opposed to salvific grace. And in this sense, God is clearly bestowing His favor upon humankind. He gives rains, He gives the sunshine, so forth and so on. God blesses His creation. But, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, but here's the distinction. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says in verses 19 through 21, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God revealed Himself within creation God, we are condemned by virtue of that revelation, but what? But what? But God has not revealed salvific characteristics within His creation. Uh, so what, again, going back to what is revealed to us, uh, you think about it this way. For an area of the world that the gospel has not yet advanced, which incidentally, a whole other topic uh, that we're not going to go into today, but a great topic to tie into this would be, uh, why do we participate in international missions? Why do we participate in sending out missionaries uh, to various parts of the world? And imagine that you are in an area where the gospel has never advanced, you've never heard the name of Jesus, uh, and yet... Scripture says, but there is still evidence that there is a God. It is also evidence of God's character and God's moral law. Think about it this way. Again, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says in verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, do, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What's that saying? They're saying that the unregenerate, the pagan, 
who has never heard the gospel, and yet there is testimony that not only is there a God, but there are certain principles, or what we would call laws, for which they are accountable. Paul goes on in chapter 2 of Romans, in verse 14 and 15, and says, Now I'm going to explain to you, this is actually in my phrasing, but I'm now going to explain to you how the unbeliever knows that there is a moral law. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14, For when Gentiles, and pause there for just a second, in, in the context of Romans, he is making a statement about the Jews and how the Jews are not saved by virtue of their heritage. And obviously, we're going to get to, he's going to get to Romans chapter 3 and that we're all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So he is inserting the word Gentiles here as to make that distinction. But for our point is you can just insert the word unbelievers. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So what's he saying? What he's saying is, is that even though there, is a, there are a people, there is a people that does not have the Ten Commandments, does not have God's moral law, they know God's moral law. How do they know it? According to the Apostle Paul. It's written on their hearts. So according to their, we would say, their conscience. According to their conscience, they know murder is wrong. They know that adultery is wrong. They know that, so forth and so on, we could walk through the moral law and find over and over again that these are consistent themes. Uh, If you've ever talked to an unbeliever about this uh, who refers to sin as a derivative of social mores, Uh, One of the things that is going to be a topic of discussion within that discussion is, don't you find it remarkably interesting that there are commonalities to these, what we call sin, throughout the world, throughout history? Over and over and over again, we see it. Well, this is not by accident. Paul says, this is how we are wired as human beings. Human beings, our consciences testify to the Ten Commandments. But, despite the fact that our conscience testifies to the the moral law of God, despite the fact that creation sings loud and clearly, there is a God. That's why, uh, as I've said before, is that I spend very little time as a pastor of a church on apologetics for atheists because, Scripture says, who says there's no God? The dummy, right? So, I'm not, I'm not working with dummies, right? <laughs> so, it's the fool that says there's no God. He looks at a creation and goes, nope, must have been an accident, <laughs> fool, right? But, nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that a person can know the gospel 
or know the way of salvation through general revelation. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we can look to God's creation and say, apart from Scripture giving us the terms, apart from Scripture giving us the theology, apart from Scripture, no one looks at creation. No one looks within themselves to their conscience. No one looks anywhere and sees the way of salvation through general revelation. That comes only through... Another, here's your other theological term for today. Special revelation. Special revelation. And special revelation is a theological term that means revelation directly from God for the specific point of knowing Him through Christ. So the Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel, as we discussed in Westminster Confession point one, I mean chapter one, point one. But the question is, is that if the gospel is necessary for salvation, how do we receive it? How do we receive the gospel? And some of you who have uh, uh, in the past memorized the, the Romans Road, uh, you know when you're memorizing the, the Romans Road uh, that there are some key verses that come out of chapter 10, right? You got Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, and then there are several that come out of Romans 10. Now, I'm not going to quote all of those, but I'm going to give a couple of key verses, uh, 14 and 17, uh, that emphasize how do we receive the gospel. And you don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, if you're in Romans chapter 10, and if you were to go to verse 14, we find that we cannot believe in Christ unless we have heard of Him. We cannot believe in Christ unless we have heard of Him. Paul says, How then will they call on Him, that is Christ, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Again, the idea is, as Paul is conveying it here, is that you have to have heard of Christ, you have to have been told of Christ, before you can believe in Christ. Well, then what's the answer to that? Well, the rest of Romans chapter 14, uh, rather 10 verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right? It's a rhetorical question. The Paul, Apostle Paul is making a statement there. What's the necessity? The necessity is preaching Christ. We cannot hear of Christ unless someone tells. And I'll park there for just a second in our outline to say this. Don't get hung up on the word preaching. Um, the, 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 the word as it's translated there uh, in the Greek is a declaration. Uh, so to declare something. So you don't have to be an ordained quote-unquote preacher to declare the truth. As the gospel is the truth, that there is salvation in Christ alone, we declare it. We all declare that. It's all, it's all, all of us have that responsibility. And then, if you were to skip down to, in chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Some of you may have memorized that in a different translation, uh, but in the ESV, it inserts the, the uh, preposition through. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing 
unquote, through the Word of Christ. In other words, saving faith comes through hearing the Gospel. So, the Gospel is necessary, the Gospel must be declared, and the Gospel must be heard. In other words, it's not just that it be declared, but that it be declared to, to be declared to those who will hear it. And so again, the idea here is that while God has revealed Himself in His creation and through providence, according to His special revelation, He has chosen to reveal Himself salvifically, and He has chosen to do that through the gospel, through the gospel, through the declaration and hearing of the gospel. So... We have God's Word. We use God's Word. We have a full canon of Scripture. And within that canon of Scripture, we have, as the Confession says in chapter 1.7, we have specific parts of that Scripture that tell us very clearly that salvation is in Christ alone. And so drawing from Scripture and sharing that Gospel, we declare that truth. But Scripture and the declaration of the gospel is not just for our salvation. It's also for our sanctification. It's not just for our, and I'll switch from salvation to justification, it's not just for our justification, but it is also for our sanctification. And this is where I want to conclude today and that is, is that Jesus said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the first thing that I, I want to, first point that I want to make on this in terms of our sanctification is that we go to God's Word to be nourished. to be nourished. Um, There are starving Christians out there. Maybe you once were a starving Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard the gospel declared. You believed in the gospel. And yet, you're not consistently in God's Word. Maybe you've got friends. Maybe you've got family who, who are like this. That they are malnourished because they're not consistently in God's Word. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a comprehensive statement. It's a statement of the, of course, the nourishment, but how God feeds us and how He feeds us on His Word. And then the Apostle Peter, and I'm going to break this up, but the Apostle Peter in chapter 1 And chapter 2 of his first epistle says this, quote, Since you have been born again... So pause there for just a second. So if I were preaching through this, I would say, now Peter is preaching to believers. That's a a key point, right? This This is not Paul on Mars Hill preaching to pagan philosophers or whatever. No, he's preaching to believers. He says, now now you have been born again, 
And let me remind you, you were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Heard that one before, haven't you? And then he goes on to say, And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So pause there for just a second before I read out of chapter 2. So what Peter is saying there is he's saying that you, this, this, this Word that never fails, always abides, always remains, is in fact eternal. This Word was preached to you. You believed it, you took it in, and by virtue of that, you were, quote-unquote, born again. And then, in chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, later in chapter 2, uh, he makes a tie-in which interpretively uh, leads me and others to deduce that the milk that he's talking about here is, in fact, the Word of God. Um, there are some people who take a different interpretive position. I won't go in that today. Uh, read the rest of chapter 2, and I think it's pretty uh, cut and dried that he's referring here to the Word of God. But think about what he's saying. The new bo- like newborn infants, so it's a simile, and the imagery is for all of us that have had children, have been around children. We know that a child who is hungry wants to be fed and will let you know about it, right? And cry and cry and whine and whine and whine until they get fed. Similar to grown men. And as a joke. As the newborn infant longs for the milk, the Apostle Peter says that's exactly the way that we are. That's how we are to be. We are to desire God's Word so strongly, so powerfully, that there is nothing else in existence. And again, I'm thinking, drawing from the, the, the simile of the baby. And that in a baby's world, when the baby is hungry, nothing else matters, Right? Everything is focused upon that. That is an extraordinary desire. Peter says, be like that. Be like that. Let your desire for the Word of God be that powerful. And as a result, he says, in this being nourished, that you may grow up into salvation. That you may grow up into salvation. And the the word salvation there interpretively is not referring to your justification, but what he's talking about there as the word salvation has multiple meanings. He's saying that you may grow as you have been justified. I'll use our theological terminology here. As you have been justified through faith in Christ alone, you have been adopted as a child of God. You were regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. And by virtue of the Holy Spirit, now you're growing up and up and up in your sanctification, in your sanctification. And so one of the ways in which we grow, if someone comes to me and says, uh, I'm a new Christian, and I really want to grow in my faith, what do I need to grow, what do I need to do to grow in my faith? 
well, what do you think that I'm going to say to him or her? Be in the Word of God. Actually, this has happened to me. I've lost count how many times this happened. I'll tell you exactly what I tell them. I say, be in the Word of God every single day. Without fail, no excuses. Don't allow yourself to be out of the Word. Be in the Word of God every day. Pray every day and be faithful to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ on the Lord's Day worshiping. Those three things are the things that I, I tell them. But in regards to this... The point is, is that if you want to grow, you can't grow unless you're being nourished on that pure spiritual milk. Number two, in our sanctification, the Bible is God's revealed will. The Bible is God's revealed will. It's been years now, but once upon a time, uh, Sydney and I worked with college students, and um, I'm not cool enough to work with college students now. Uh, but uh, but once upon a time, we, we, I wasn't cool then either. I wasn't cool enough to work with college students then either. Um, so I'm not sure what we were doing. It was a misdirection in ministry. I don't know, but um, but we 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 did. And but I remember at the time, and I'm not sure if if this is still the case. Uh, but I remember at the time, uh, a typical college student, when they were getting close to graduating, they would say, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. I just, I just, which, which translated what they mean is, or what they meant, I think, was, I don't have a job and I want to know what career I should pursue. But they didn't use that terminology because I was a pastor, Sunday school teacher, all this sort of thing. And so, but I just want to know what God's will for my life is, which means that what they meant by this also was, is I want you to tell me the mathematical equation that I can plug in, that I can run the formula and it will go, that's it. You're going to be a CPA. God never said that to anyone ever. No, just kidding. Uh, but in that, what I would typically do is I would say, you know what, let's start here. Let's start with Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I would say, <clears throat> the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. And I would say, what do you, what do you suppose they mean by secret things? Well, the end of the world? When it's all over, all, all sorts of... They would have an answer for everything except what their job was going to be when they graduated from college, right? And I'd say, I would say, well, do you, do you think that it's possible that secret things... That that's secret things? Uh, that's not what they wanted to hear. And I said, well, let's go to the second part of the verse. That you, that, 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 but the things that are revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And I said, now, let's think about this. First of all, there are things that have been revealed. Well, how does God reveal Himself? And they always got this right. How does God reveal Himself? We revealed Himself in the Bible. That's right. He has revealed Himself in the Bible. Who is it He revealed it to? He's revealed it to His church. To you, to me, to our children, to our grandchildren. God has revealed Himself in His Word to His people. Got it. 
okay? That we may do all the words of this law. So there is a purpose. There is a moral attachment to the revelation of God. So God's given us His Word, and He has given it to His people, and He has given it on purpose that we may live according to His calling. Or as, as Jesus puts it, that, that we may live according to His commands. Alright, so we got that. And so then I would say, now, that's God's will for your life. It's been revealed to you. The Bible. There it is. Not the answer that they would want to hear, but it's the answer that we all need to remember. There are certain things that are secret. Nobody on God's green earth knew what that college student was going to do later in life. And as many of us know, in looking back, the twists and turns and all of the different things, that if you thought that I was going to be standing up here in front of you and in a few minutes preaching across the street, I'd have called you crazy. And yet, the twists and turns of life, those secret things of God. But there are certain things that are not secret. And God has revealed those to us in His revealed will. Scripture is the revealed will of God. For the secret things, we trust the Lord. We don't know. We don't know why things happen the way they do. We don't know the direction of really anything, do we? But God's will has been revealed to us, and to that we dedicate ourselves. All right, I've got uh, about three or four minutes uh, for any questions or comments on what we've looked at today or anything leading up to this on the clarity of Scripture or the authority of Scripture or today's topic on the necessity of Scripture. Any questions? Any earth-shattering comments? Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, in closing, let me remind you to pick up a copy of Meredith Meyer's article from Table Talk. Uh, it's a real gem. And then next week, uh, what we will do is we will conclude our, our study on the attributes of Scripture uh, in looking at uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the living Word, and that You have given us the inscripturated Word that we may know how we might live in You, both through our justification as well as our sanctification. And we thank You that Your Word is indeed eternal, that it is everlasting, that we can trust upon it like a sure foundation and so today, as we gather across the street to worship You, we will indeed read Your Word, sing Your Word, preach Your Word. In all of this, we pray that You would reveal Your will to us. May You be glorified through the ministry of Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.